And if you would take out your copies of God's Word with me today, so we turn to Mark today. We out of our normal Gospel of Luke. We will return after our uh, Holy Week celebrations are concluded. But today we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. As we are reminded of this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Listen carefully. This is the word of Christ. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us ask his blessing on our text one more time as we begin our examination of his passage. Lord, we do ask for your blessing today. We thank you for this passage that you've given to us and the truth that is inside. So I pray that you would help us to hear it. Help me to preach it accurately and edifyingly. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to see you all here on this first Palm Sunday that I've got to be here in this building. It's wonderful to see all of you here. Just a year ago, we were all huddled together in our homes. I was in the guest bedroom preaching to an iPhone. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see how the Lord has brought us all together. And it's a wonderful day to, to be together as we celebrate this landmark day in redemptive history. This comes as a fulfillment of a prophecy, the prophecy, in fact, that we read in our Old Testament reading this morning from Zechariah 9 of the Lord Jesus coming together and riding this donkey into Jerusalem. But you know, there is so much that had to happen for this day to be a reality. For the king of glory to enter into the gates of Jerusalem. So much needed to be done just to make today possible. To say nothing else of all the centuries of fulfillment that had to take place in order for this day to even be a possibility. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at as we examine this passage today. We're going to look at two points today as usual, which you can find in your outline. The first is that we're going to see the control of a king. 
the control of a king. And then secondly, we're going to look at the characteristics of a king. We'll be examining what it is that these uh, worshipers are saying to Jesus. And while they probably didn't grasp the full implications of what they were saying, nonetheless, they spoke the truth about our Savior. We're going to examine what those have to tell to us today. So first, let's take a look at our first point, which is the control of a king, as we see here in our first few verses together. Jesus has begun his trek to Jerusalem for a long time. Indeed, as the day he began his ministry, as we've been seeing in Luke, all of this has been leading up to this final week here in Jerusalem. He has arrived and is outside in these outer cities and at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sends two of his disciples to go in and get this donkey. And, of course, everything, as Jesus says, is exactly how it happens. The donkey is exactly where he said it would be. The people said exactly what he said that they would say. And they responded exactly as Jesus said that they would say to what Jesus told them to say. All of these things have been under control. And for those of us that are familiar with this scene, we forget how much is at stake here. How much if one thing is missing, so much is thrown out. You see, when Jesus is going to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah, he can't fill just most of them. He can't get some of them and leave a few off. It has to be the whole thing. Otherwise, he's not the Messiah. There were many people that were born in Bethlehem. There were those that could claim the lineage of David. There were even many prophets that could be pointed to. Many people that did miracles. There was no one else who was born of a virgin. No one else who was to ride on a donkey and to join in this festal celebration. Jesus has to do everything. Nothing can be missing. So here, this is what Jesus does. That, of course, he fulfills all of these requirements that he has. And I think in this demonstration that he has, this is something of a microcosm for how he has guided everything. When we think about those long lists of genealogies that the more honest among us will admit that we skip when we get to our daily Bible readings, all of those are important. If one of them is missing, then the plan is thrown off, isn't it? The genealogy has to work all the way down. We can't have this thing where this branch goes off and all of a sudden Jesus isn't a descendant of Abraham anymore. All of these things have to be put into effect. All of these moments, all of Mark chapters 1 through 10 all have to happen. Genesis 1 through Mark chapter 10 all have to happen in order for this time to be. And all of those thousands of little providential moments that God is in charge of all this way through has been leading to this very point. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is outside of his control. And this is important for us to remember. This will be important for the disciples to remember. Because while all the celebration is happening now, and it's wonderful to think and easy to think, in fact, that God is in control when people are celebrating and life is good, he's also in control of Good Friday as well. And every detail that transpires there Every nail put into his hand, every whip on his back is under his control as well. 
because that has a purpose too. This is what it means to have control as a king. And when he comes into Jerusalem and they praise him as such, though they don't, again, grasp the fullness of what they're saying, it is indeed that he is king and rules over everything, and that he is in control. You know, this is be important for us to be reminded of when God asks us to do hard things. Hard things that might cost us something. Or even commands that might be embarrassing. Here the disciples have been told to go into this village and go take this donkey. There doesn't seem to be a hint that the disciples have any sort of prearranged plan with this. They would have been aware of it if it had been. Here they're just going off of Jesus' word that there is going to be provision for where he sends them. And that, they're, that even though he's sending them into likely opposition, if that they will, may, they will stick with what Jesus had said, that they will be successful in their mission. It's the same thing that we see today. The message that we're called to bring to our culture is not one that will be received. One that will have a lot of question marks around us whenever we stay faithful to what Christ commands. But our job is not to worry about how the people will be received. What the people will think of us. The disciples' job was not to worry about what the cult owner thought about what they were doing. Their main focus, their total drive was what Jesus had told them to do. This will be something that they'll keep in mind as the obedience to their commands, to Jesus' commands, will result in all but one of their deaths. To be faithful to the end. But Christ is working in that too. Christ is working in the hard things, even as much as he is working in the good. That's what we mean when we say that he has got control as a king. And I want to spend more time here in this second point as we dwell on the person of Christ. There is so much that we could look at here, but I want to focus on really verses 9 through 11 as we see the characteristics of a king, as we slow down and take a look at this passage of what's before us. Now, Jesus in verse 7 has been sat onto a donkey. This is a colt that has not had anyone ride it before, so there's no saddle that's been made for it. So they have to make one by putting their cloaks and clothes on top of it for this makeshift saddle for him. Commentators have pointed out the importance of this and that in the Old Testament, when you were going to dedicate something for a holy use, it had to be unused before. It wasn't put to common use prior, but it was set aside for holy use. And that's what we see here of Jesus riding in. Now, this would be a statement to ride into Jerusalem. Pilgrims at this time, this has been the time of Passover, would have walked into Jerusalem. It would have been too crowded otherwise. But for you to ride into Jerusalem, that was really saying something. This had happened actually 150 years earlier during the Maccabean Revolt. And Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem on, on, on a donkey to celebrate the overthrowing of their oppressors 150 years before. But here Jesus is coming in and is making this statement of a ruler. This is a king riding in on a donkey, had a wonderful tradition. It goes back to David and to Solomon as well, and Solomon's son. And the people recognize that. And they begin to give him this 
royal welcome and to show him the respect of a king. Here they go and they start spreading their cloaks out on to the road and cutting down branches to put down so that the street mud does not affect the donkey's foot. But there's a statement that they're making here. The people are responding to what Jesus is showing them and they're spreading out their cloaks. This was a symbol of willingness to surrender what they have to him. Kent Hughes put it this way. They're saying that Jesus can have everything, even trample their property if he so desired. Putting everything out, even if all it's going to be is destroyed. It's a sacrifice that they're making. These Israelites don't have these large walk-in closets with 30 cloaks hanging at home. This would be a statement of submission, a wonderful gesture, a grand gesture. But it's fitting for what Jesus is and who he and what he's about to do. There is no one in the world who deserves this gesture more. This is the king who is coming. And the people begin to shout here in verse 9 of their praises to him. And they start out by praise by, by saying, Hosanna. Hosanna by this point probably would have been an expression of praise much like we use the term hallelujah today, even though that has that phrase, hallelujah is, is, is saying something. It says, Yahweh be praised. And here in Hosanna, this would be save us now. And this is what they are offering up to Christ. Because they see in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They look to him as a potential political ruler. And indeed, this would be very, very exciting. Remember the passage that we read from, from the Old Testament? There would be one who would coming in, riding in on a donkey, whose rule would extend from the river to the sea, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, from sea to sea. We'd be restoring Israel to greatness. You have to throw off the shackles of the Romans for good this time. You can imagine that this would be an amazing Event, the air must have been electric to think that here comes our political savior. But he's not the savior that they perceive him to be. They perceive a political deliverer. And that is one day what Jesus will be, but that's not what we really need deliverance from. Indeed, the deliverer that he is going to be is going to deliver us from our sin, our true biggest problem. And this, unfortunately, this sort of misidentification of what Jesus has actually come to do is still very prevalent today. We can rejoice to see Jesus because we think that that, is, that that means the end of our, of our biggest problems as we perceive them. Here in America, there is this... Um, accursed prosperity gospel that says that your biggest problem is lack of money. And people will rejoice and pack into stadiums to hear about this Savior who will deliver them from their finances and their debt. But that's not the Jesus that's come here today. What Jesus has come to do is not to deliver us from our problems as we perceive them, but he has come to deliver us from our sin. And really, this is a much 
more preferable thing to be delivered from, isn't it? There's a lot of people that can, that can be politically savvy. It's very easy to find your way into political rulership. Just look at our current ruling class. How difficult could it be to get into that position? But yet what Jesus is doing here is that he is going to be a deliverer in the spiritual realm. That he is going to be a ruler over the things that we cannot even begin to see, much less control. So here we see that in our first point of our characteristics of, of a king is that he is a savior. He's come to deliver us. He's walking on this road to the cross. He is a savior. But the next is our phrase is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is actually a reference to Psalm 118, verse 26. And this would probably have been chanted back and forth. Of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are correct. Though they imagine, from, if they were taking the context from Psalm 118, they were probably imagining people who were coming to worship God. But there is something that's so much more. That he is not only coming in the name of the Lord, but he is the name of the Lord. That he is divine. So our second characteristic of a king is that he is divine. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, this next phrase. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Here again, we are reminded of the kingdom that Christ is setting up for this moment is a spiritual one. When Jesus is interrogated by Pilate in John 18, 36, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. But it doesn't make it any less of a kingdom. We tend to get very caught up in the things that we can see. Or imagine that God is only making progress when we can see it. When the numbers are going, when the graph is going in the proper direction or when the buildings are being built and the institutions are being stabilized. That's not the fullness of what the kingdom of God is. But the things that he is building is a spiritual one. And that he is going to be the head of the church. And that he will rule today, tomorrow, and forever into eternity. In fact, if you want to see where this king is going, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We can see here what sort of authority that this king holds. And see if we can walk away from this and not be impressed. Revelation chapter 5 starting in verse 8. And when he, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the kingdom. A kingdom of myriads and myriads of thousands upon ten thousands with all creatures in heaven and earth and under the earth praising him. So yes, he is a descendant of David. But oh, how much more. He is not just a ruler in the sense that we think of. But he is an eternal ruler whose praise in the future we've just read. He is an everlasting ruler. That's our third characteristic of our kings. We've seen that, one, that he is a savior. He's delivering us from our sin. This is a king who has come to conquer not with sword and bow, but is going to conquer by dying. By taking the judgment that was meant for us and our sin, he takes that to the cross with him, a king who dies for his subjects and not the other way around, and promises to give forgiveness and life to all who would come to him, that he would cast none away who come to him. He's a savior, but he's also divine And he is an eternal ruler. Aren't you glad that your ultimate hope is not an earthly king or government? Aren't you glad that this is your king? If your hope has thus far been in American politics, then wow. This has been some disappointing decades, hasn't it? I don't know what it was like prior to the 90s, but for as long as I've been alive, things have been a mess. But aren't you glad you have someone so much higher than that to be responsible to? We don't look to elections for hope. We don't look to news results and polls. But we look to our king who rode in humbly on a donkey, even though he was the ruler of the world, though he would receive the praises of angels, he was willing to ride into a city that would, for right now, at this moment, hail him as king, but would soon hang him as prisoner in just a week. It's good for us to remember this, who it is that we are, Subject to, and the gratitude that we should have. Because our gratitude is, empowers our obedience. Because at the end of the day, this is still our king. My wife and I were talking about this passage, and one of the points that she had made out of is that one of the things that we like to do with Jesus' kingship is we like to give him small slivers of our life to be in control over. 
You can have my Sunday morning. You can have my Wednesday night. You can have this. But the rest of this is for me. That's not the case. We have an eternal hope, but that eternal hope comes at a surrender. A surrendering to our king, turning over our entire lives to him. I don't know about you, but Jesus runs my life a lot better than I do. He rules the world much better than our governments do. If we would but trust him. Comes back to the first passage that we were looking at. When Jesus asks us to go into a city we're unfamiliar with and go pursue a task that we think is going to have opposition to us, there's a tendency to want to shrink back and to say, it's like, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to give you that much control. But when we see where this king is going in Revelation chapter 5, I think that's the one I want to be in charge of me. Though he will ask for hard things. He is going to meet us even when it costs us. Although if we see it correctly, we might not see it as a cost at all. I've referenced this book many times. I've just finished it, so I'll probably start referencing something else in a little while. But finished up this book called Live Not by Lies. And one of the stories that it has is the story of story of Alexander, Shol- Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it's a Russian. He wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, in which he records his experiences in the Soviet prison. He was there for a decade for his stand for Christ. He was left with all the horrors that you could imagine, which I won't recall here. But when he writes about his experience in the prison with the lice and with the tortures. He says that I often surprise people. He says, and I quote here, and that's why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment. Sometimes I say to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, for being in my life. And he credits the prison for teaching him how to love and has refined him. That's the faith of someone who has entrusted his soul to Christ. And even though this road had led him into the gulag, he had found Christ there and saw him more clearly there than he had ever felt otherwise. This wasn't the statement of just him. There were many stories that I read of people experiencing just that same thing. There were those that had felt a freedom in a windowless prison suffering for Christ than they ever felt outside of it. That's the hope that they have of the gospel, that the king would be glorified even in our struggles and our sufferings, that they become a source of joy. I could imagine one of these pilgrims here is participating in this grand praise, maybe one who had laid out his cloak I can imagine him coming back home after a couple of weeks of being in Jerusalem. He comes back and he reverently hangs his cloak onto the wall. It's got mud all over it and there's a donkey hoof shaped hole that's been put right through the center of it. Imagine it's useless now as a cloak because it won't keep the wind out. And I could imagine people who would look at it as this wall and would say, why are you hanging this cloak 
Why are you keeping this? This has no purpose as a cloak anymore. Why would you be reminded of something like that? Why is that there? And I could imagine the pilgrim simply smiling and saying to his friend, it says, oh, this is no ugly cloth. That's the cloak that my Lord walked across on his way to die for my sin. That's the greatest cloak that I own. And even the sufferings that he brings us to and the hardships that we endure might indeed become the trophies of his grace in our lives. That we see the things that we have turned over to him are not lost, for we have gained him in return. So what's our takeaway from this passage here? What do we learn from Mark chapter 11? Well, we remember that God is providentially in charge of all things, large and small, in redemptive history and beyond. We have learned that he is the humble, divine Savior King who demands our entire lives be spent for his glory because he rode in on a donkey into a city to sacrifice his life for us. This is the most glorious offer that we have ever been given. And if we have to the opportunity to glorify God by our suffering, well, then let's praise him for it. For our king is worthy. This lamb is worthy who is slain for us. So if you have not surrendered to this king yet, either here in this room or watching on our stream this morning, I pray that you would remember who it is that's done this for you. Christ didn't have to do it. He didn't have to save us from our sins. He could have just let us endure the consequences and would have been perfectly just doing so. But instead, he showed his graciousness, came down, died on the cross for our sins. And as we will see next week, was ro rose again from the dead and promises us the same resurrection, that we can be delivered if we will but repent of our sins and put our trust in him. This is a wonderful story that we have, this triumphal entry. And we do look forward to the day when he triumphantly enters again, not to suffer for our sins, but to rule over all creation forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this passage that we have seen in front of us. I pray that you would help us to submit to this great king, this divine savior king, who is our eternal ruler. Lord, give us the grace to follow you wherever that is, whether that is untying donkeys from a fence post or courageously speaking the gospel into a world that doesn't want to hear. I pray that you would keep us faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.